0: You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Uh, As Psalm 130 says, it's in your word that we hope. It gives us hope man in a world that's dark full of need full of pain full of anger we need your word and uh every every week we need your every day we need your word but specifically as a church family as we gather corporately man we need your word we need to hear from you as the spirit speaks through it and I'm just a humble servant not as humble as I should be uh As I want to take glory, as I want to take credit. But this is not about, this isn't anything about us. It's not about me. This is about the name of Jesus this morning. We are people of the name of Jesus. We're not just people of faith. We're not just people of God. We're people of Jesus. And it is is in the name of Jesus that we do these things. And it's for his glory and for his name. We want to magnify his name in this city. We want this to be about Jesus. Uh, You know, restoration will come and go. Aaron Ottaway will come and go. And while I'm here, I just want to point to him. Because he's what saves. There's no other name that saves, no other name as much as I want to cling to my own reputation and cling to my own strength, my own salvation, whether it's my job, whether it's letters after my name, whatever it means, God, there's, there's, there's no other name that can save me, though. He is the one who is powerful. He is the only one who has conquered death. He's the only one who has done the impossible that gives this world hope. It is that that we want to focus on this morning. We pray for all this in your name. Amen. Um, it's been a weird couple of weeks for us, as many of you know, uh, our well, maybe partly what, because I'm tired, is our middle, our middle daughter's birthday was yesterday. We had about 15 seven-year-old girls running around our home yesterday. That was tiring. Lot of pink, so much pink, so many fairy wings, so, my, so much stuff. There was no camouflage or anything like that. Um, that's all, That's Rose's thing. Claire's kind of more of our tomboy. She likes roses. Rose loves fairies and pink and all that stuff. So, but two weeks ago, our 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 daughter Audrey. See, I, I grew up in a family where where um, where we under we underestimated or underemphasized things. And, and my wife maybe is the opposite. But the. Um, uh, Audrey started to get sick, and she got some kind of virus, and so we kept her home from church and everything like that last week. And then, oh, this is two weeks ago, and then just didn't seem to get any better. She would get a fever; it would it would it would spike to like 105, and which is kind of scary when you got a you know five year old that has fever that high. But I'm I grew up in a family where it's like just drink some water and go back to bed. You know, you'll be okay. It sounds like I'm being heartless, but that's just kind of where I came from. And, uh, but after a while, it started to get concerning because the fever wouldn't stay, couldn't stay down. It kept spiking back up. So eventually we took her to the hospital. And yes, she had a pretty bad case of pneumonia that wouldn't have gotten better, <laughs> which is humbling for me because I do not want to go to the hospital. And there's no way I wanted to go to the hospital, but thank the Lord we did. And uh, she was, you know, it, it's a humbling thing to see your five year old sit, you know, on a hotel. And many of you have gone through so much worse than we have um, but laying on a hospital bed and there's nothing you can do about it you're just there I don't know what's going on and she's being wheeled around getting x-rays taken and she doesn't understand what's going on and she, get you know, getting get IV into her, into her hand and getting blood tests done and you know, she was a trooper but I, I think I was more scared than she was I don't really like being in hospitals to begin with they kind of freak me out but it's a whole different ballgame when, when, when it's your five-year-old daughter. So, You know, one thing when Audrey was in hospital, and she's fine now. She's, she's in the back. Everything's good. One thing, though, when there's a greatest concern right in front of you, what you know, begin to notice is I didn't care about everything else I was worrying about in life. You know, I worry so much about emails and whether I... Whether I text back to people in time, and what are they going to think of me? I man, I didn't say that sentence completely correct in that email. You guys get my emails, and you know how many spelling mistakes I make. I send them, I I hit click send way too quickly, Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh shoot, I probably should have read that over first. Um, But I, I worry about like, how did I say that in my sermon? Man, I didn't say that complete, and I worry about all of these little things. But as soon as you have the greatest concern in front of you, which is your daughter with pneumonia, there's nothing you can do about it. All of a sudden, I don't care about all of that stuff. Who cares if I didn't say anything? the thing completely correctly? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? When the greatest concern is in front of you, all of the other anxieties seem to float away. Um, Colin talked about, he started last week, and I'll get into this in a second, but we're going to be really confronted with being witnesses in our world. That we have to speak the name of Jesus. We have to speak the truth about what Jesus has done, and... Anyone got anxieties about that? I do. I hate doing it. It's always awkward. I'm, the, I'm a pastor, and I kind of have an advantage because that's usually my in toward that conversation because they, everyone asks what you do. And we, we become, Nikki and I will become, this happened this past week, and, and Nikki and I become friends with people, and this is great, and we're, we're talking, and everything's great. And then the, you know, the question comes, what do you do? Oh boy, I'm a pastor. And you can tell immediately they're all all of a sudden like, oh shoot, what have I just said? They're like rehearsing everything that they just said for the last two hours. What did I say? Did I swear? And they feel like they have to apologize for who they are just because I'm a pastor. I'm like, I don't care. I coached high school football. There's not much you can say that I haven't heard already. (laughs) <laughs> that's usually my end toward that conversation. Um, it still it makes me anxious. You know, maybe some of you are anxious about, you don't know what to say. Like, what if they have a, what if they have a, a philosophical argument that's just like, oh, shoot, I don't know how to respond to that. And you can just tell, like, you, there's, there's, there's a potential of rejection. Like, what if they don't like me as much? What if it gets awkward? You know, I think one of the greatest ways to battle those kind of anxieties, and I'm not saying those things matter. They do matter. However, they are less anxieties than, than, they're they're, they're of less concern than the greatest concern. Which is that people just need to hear about Jesus. Acts 4 verse 12 says that there is no other name that can save. And it's that reality of a world that's in pain and desperately needs hope that should trump all of the other anxieties that we may feel about not sharing about him. You know, spiritually, people are sitting in hospital beds and need oxygen, need life. And that greatest concern, if we focused on that greatest concern, everything else should be of less concern to us. Who cares if you didn't say it completely correct? It doesn't matter. What does matter is that they would hear about the name, which is the only name that can save. Acts chapter four is where we're going to be today, Uh, and we're going to learn about. Colin started this last week about two guys who, who were common, uneducated men. That's how they were described they observed them to be uneducated. I don't know what it was about them whether they didn't dress completely the right way or they didn't put all of the nice emphases on the words that they sp- I don't know what it was, but they observed that they were common edu- uneducated people. And we're going to take this instance where these common uneducated men, two of them, stood before 72 spiritual and social elites who would judge them, who are all standing like this, all these elite men, standing before them, waiting for them to say something wrong. I get anxious when I'm talking to my friend about Jesus. We got two guys are going to have to stand before 72 spiritual elites Wait. I've got to do my ordination this year, and I'm freaked out about it, which is you got to stand before and basically prove that you know what you're talking about in front of a group of pastors. Here's two guys who are uneducated people standing before 72 elite men who had all the power in the world waiting for them to mess up with what they're going to say, judging them. That's kind of, that's kind of ang- anxious, Right? But their response was, I'm a witness to Jesus. That's what matters most. I can't help. I can't help it. I have to be a witness to Jesus because that's what matters most. So it doesn't matter if I mess up my words. It doesn't matter if I'm scared. I have to be a witness because that's, that's my first and foremost calling. Look what it says in Acts chapter 4. Colin started out with seeing chapter 1, which is that Peter and John, they see someone who they see a lame beggar who's been there for years. And a whole bunch of happens. You can take a look at I'm not going to rehash Colin's whole sermon. You can look at YouTube or Spotify if you want to listen to that from last week. Scene one, Peter and John heal him and he's walking. It says he's walking leaping and praising God. All the people see him walking and praising God. And they recognize him as that guy who was sitting in front of the temple who was a lame man and everyone praises God for it. And then scene two... Peter and John give a sermon about what has happened and what power was behind what they have d- just done. Of course, this causes a commotion as the gospel is shared that this is this is the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God that you claim to know now is manifested in the person of Jesus. Of course, this causes a commotion, which leads us to scene three, Acts 4, verse 1 5. <laughs> Acts 4, verse 1 to 5. It says this. Scene 3. The arrest. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple. And the Sadducees came upon them. This sound familiar? Some of them speaking to a crowd of people, and all of a sudden the priests, the captain of the guard, and the Sadducees come upon them. Sound familiar? It's not in the garden this time, it's on the streets, but it's the same kind of situation. They were greatly annoyed. I love that description. They were greatly annoyed. Who is causing this disturbance of the peace? They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people, and this is important, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So it wasn't just that they were disturbing the peace. They were teaching something specific about Christianity and it annoyed them. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men, they say men, whether that means everybody and it's, or it's gender specific as a man representing a household, whatever it means, came to about 5,000 It's kind of hard to fathom. Now, I'm going to get into the next scene, which is kind of the more important one in the story. However, I just want to say a quick word here as we look into this little account of their arrest. They're greatly in... The the spiritual and social elites are greatly annoyed, which I will get into in a second. So they arrest them. And it's too late to try them that day, so they'll do it the next morning. Again, sounds very familiar of a man a few years previous that they arrested in the evening and they waited till the morning to put on trial. And I just want to say this. Before we get into the actual story, as this is kind of an intro for the trial, scene four... Sometimes I think we look at this and now we read the Bible and we think, okay, yeah, no problem. But if this happened today, I think it helps us redefine what we find is successful when we do ministry in the, in the world. I think we, we sometimes think success is where everything works out exactly the way you thought it was going to work out. It was something that met my expectations. Nothing went wrong. You know, I wonder if Colin and I had a diagnosis after this event and be like, maybe we shouldn't have said the things we said and caused such a stir and not gotten arrested. You know, we could have shared the gospel without anything, hap- anything going wrong. And that would be successful. I would be tempted to think like that. You know, if I'm writing an article or I'm preaching a message and someone is offended or something is angered about them, I think, well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Now, I'm not saying you'd be boastful for the wrong reasons or be brash just for the sake of being brash. But the reality is this. If you say anything of matter, some people are not going to take it well. You're going to frustrate or greatly annoy someone. Or else you're probably not saying anything of worth. You know, if you've got something hard to say, I always think, I've got to confront somebody, and if I get my words exactly right, it's almost like they'll thank me for saying it. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I get this exactly right, nothing wrong is going to happen. They're going to be like, thank you, Aaron, for giving me that criticism that I didn't know I needed to hear. It's probably not going to happen right. You know, I, I, I often wish that, you know, everything worked out completely the way that I expected. But the point is this. A successful encounter will not be void of problem or trial. A success is we do what we're called to do, which was Peter and John were witnesses of the power of Jesus. And they did that. Come what may. And God works through when people are are Witnesses. And the proof of that is in verse five, 4. Many of those who heard the word believe. 5,000 people, okay, they were arrested, but five, now they have 5,000 people who have heard the truth and have responded to it. It's incredible. Now, this isn't about formula that if we just, you know, for witnesses of Jesus, 5,000 people, it's about formation, which is often the case when we read narrative in the Bible. It's not about formula, it's about formation. However, the point is that God will work when we choose to be witnesses as it says in Acts 1 verse 8 that you have the power from the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the utter ends of the world and I'm going to work through that. In fact, the Holy Spirit is going to do great things through that. This has been a movement of preachers, men and women who've never been to ceremony, a ceremony, seminary, We've never been to seminary preaching in synagogues and street corners and that's what I believe Jesus said when he said you when Jesus was doing amazing things he says you will see and do greater things than these because by the power of the spirit there's going to be unauthorized preaching by unprofessional preachers but it's going to change the world. But they're arrested. It's too late to deliberate so they keep them overnight. Scene four, verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the, Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, this is an important question, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers of the, of the people and the elders, if we're being examined today or judged, same word, today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, has been healed? You see what Peter's doing here? It's like uh, we just did a great thing, and now you're now you're getting testy on us. Here, yeah? we just we just helped a man give his life back, and you're taking offense to this. We're being judged for this." Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, which is the third time, Peter, it's like he keeps stabbing that dagger in. Three times we've heard that already in the book of Acts. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you believe that, say amen. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you believe it, say amen. Amen. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter... By the way, if we're not bold enough to say amen now... Good luck on the streets when you're telling people about the gospel. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, great compliment. I perceive you're uneducated, Aaron. Thank you very much. Common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They were speechless. What do we say to this? They've just healed someone that no one could heal. They've done the impossible. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign, interesting choice of words, has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. They know it happened. And they can't even deny it. Now they have a decision to make. they could believe it we can't deny it so therefore maybe this is from God oh we're gonna we're gonna find out why they wouldn't do that but in order that it may spread no further this is their decision we're just gonna silence it in order that it may spread no further among the people let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Oh man, what would you say to that? You've just, been given, you've just been given your papers. No more talking about this person. How would you respond? Peter and John answered them whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Basically saying, you want us to listen to you or to God? I mean, you're spiritual elites, what would you do? For we cannot help or we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this was, this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Wow. There's a key question in this passage. What's going on in this, this trial scene? And by the way, we're going to this this is the story's not even done. We're gonna look at the ending of this story, which is such an amazing story next week and how a church responds. This week we're focusing on Peter and John. There's an important question in the passage that I think frames the rest of the the the, the account. And it's the the rulers and elders and Sadducees, they're gathered around Peter and John and you know, seventy. About seventy people staring you, staring at you, judging you. It's clear who are the judges in this passage and who is being judged, who is being examined. And they ask a question: By what power or by what name did you do this? How do you respond? How would you respond? to that question. How do you respond? You know, sometimes we get questions about our spiritual life. Like, why do you do that? You know my response usually is? Something about church. Well, I planted a church. Or something about faith. You know, you're the uneducated, the common, the blue collar, the one who holds no power on the surface in this trial. How do you respond in the face of the wealthy, the religious, and the powerful? How do you respond? What fears, if you're taking notes, what fears would rise to the surface? What would you be scared to say? You know, maybe you've been in a situation where there's an opportunity to speak, but you're scared. And usually my response is, come to my church, except I can't even use the excuse that my pastor will tell you, because I am the one. It's like, you know, I believe in God, and I think those are good responses. In this passage, though, is the unique Christian response. And Peter says it here says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today, like I said already, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. Here's the unique, distinct, Christian response. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, not just some God in the sky, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Whom you crucified, and here's the other important part, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. You know, when we share the gospel, when we confront the world with with the gospel, I think sometimes we, there's a couple things that we have to be very clear on. Colin's been, you know, is going to hit this hammer with me a lot, even just in how we communicate our Christian faith. There's a specific person in a specific event that we're about. You know, there's a lot of things. I've changed in my belief in my theology or my doctrine and some things. And that's fine. I'm open to that discussion. No problem. However, I think in our current cultural context, there is a danger of losing our distinctiveness. Things that we have to be really clear about in our current cultural context, we're very afraid of definitions because definitions exclude people, right? If you don't fit that definition, it excludes people. And that can drift into faith as well. And I've heard a lot of people recently talk about faith and I was introduced to a podcast, Uh, not a good one, a lot of good podcasts, but this one wasn't particularly good. And it was for Christians, but... The problem was, by the end of it, I didn't really even know what they believed in. Christianity to them was basically, I can call myself a Christian, and it really doesn't matter what we believe in. And I think the response would be, like, that's up to you to decide. That's a very cultural context that we live in right now. Because definitions tend to exclude people. However, if you don't have a definition, you also don't have a distinctiveness. What is it that we're actually offering people? There's two things that we have to be really big on. We're people who operate in the name of Jesus. We're not just people of God, we're not just people of faith, we're not just people who go to church. We're people of the person of Jesus. That's our distinctiveness. And secondly, we're people who believe in a crazy thing called resurrection. That's Christianity. You're going to boil it down to really simple, what is the Christian faith? We believe in two things. We believe in a person named Jesus who came to this earth. We also believe in a crazy event called the resurrection. That some people are going to look at you like you're the craziest person in the world. That yes, we believe that someone conquered sin and death and rose again from the dead. And we also believe that's the destiny of everyone who expresses faith in him as well. That death is not our final story. It's not our end page. We believe in something called resurrection. And if you don't believe in those two things, here's just the truth. That's not Christianity anymore. It's not Christian faith anymore. Those two things are Christian faith. And you've got to believe them. And if we don't believe those things, we really have nothing to offer this world. There's nothing distinctive to offer this world. Get this straight, guys. It's in our distinctiveness, not in our relevance, that we actually have something to offer. Or else this is just a group of people that get together and have fun together, which is fine. But it's not Christianity. Let me be really clear on that even in our practice such as baptism those are the two things that we are showing everyone and screaming out by what we do when we baptize people we are identifying ourselves with this person of Jesus and we're also signifying as someone goes under the water and raises out of the water what are we actually saying to people we believe in something called resurrection and it's supposed to give this world hope Some things are Christian and some are not, and it's in our distinctiveness, not our relevance, that gives us something to actually offer the world. Which is why, even in this story, there were people called Sadducees. Well, Sadducees were greatly annoyed by what was going on because Peter and John were telling people about Jesus, specifically about his resurrection. And they were greatly annoyed at that because the Sadducees were they were like the spiritual elites. They were the ruling class of aristocrats. They had some, I don't even know what it was. If you study history, they had some like backroom deal with the Roman Empire so that they could rule. It was like a mix of social and spiritual elitism. And so anything to upset that, it's like, we got to shut this down. We got to deal with the Romans. We're good. They also denied the resurrection, though. That was their big thing. There's no such thing as resurrection. So you know why they're greatly annoyed not just because there was a disturbance. Because they were telling people that they didn't believe. It was this distinguishing factor though that gave the people hope. It's because five th- it's because they told people about a resurrection that death does not define them that 5000 people came to faith. That's why. But it also threatened those who didn't hold the same belief. They were greatly annoyed. Now, do I believe this was some theological issue that they wanted to discuss? Let's understand one another. No. Now, like a great man that came before them named Jesus, they were threatened. Because they felt like their power was being taken away from them. Their influence was being taken away. And no one with power likes their power being taken away from them. They feel threatened. Jesus and now his followers have upset the established order and we can't have that. And so that's why they ask the question, by what power or what name did you do this? Because we didn't give you permission. Wasn't us. We're supposed to be the ones who check off everything that happens in this city. Wasn't us who gave you permission. So by whose power did you you do this? Who gave permission? you the right it's very interesting in this passage name is a really important theme name of Jesus there's no other name and now they say by what name basically what I believe name simply means is under whose authority are you acting who gives you the right to do this now that's why Peter and John are like, are you judging us? Why are we being examined for doing such a good deed in verse nine? Why are being, we being judged for doing such an obvious good deed? The crowd sees it. You can't even deny it. And even at the end where it says, all were praising God for what happens, this was a sign of healing that was being performed. This man who was more than 40 years old, lame from birth, is now walking again. You can't even deny it. Everyone's praising God. And all you can do is scheme of how to silence it. You can't even see a good work, all you see is a threat to your own power. All you can do is think about all you can think about how to do is to mitigate your loss of control. Here's the key point, guys. Here's the key point. And this goes for me too. Sometimes I think we read scripture and put ourselves in the shoes of the hero, And not the villain. Be like, I'm Peter and John in this passage. But I'm not the Sadducee. Who doesn't want to give up control of their life. More often than not, I think I'm the Sadducee. But you've got to ask the question, how would they miss it? The key point is this. It doesn't matter how much evidence you have. How much knowledge you've gained. Or how much time you've spent in church. You're not willing to give up control over your life. You're not going to follow Jesus. You're not going to like the gospel. It doesn't matter how much evidence you have. A miracle could happen in front of you. But if you are not willing to give up control of your life, you're not going to follow Jesus. You're not giving that up. You're not going to give up power. Doesn't how much knowledge you gain, doesn't how much time you spent in church. If you're not willing to give up power or control, you're not going to follow Jesus. We don't want to give up power. I don't want to give up control. And those who are so obsessed with their own powers, those who are so, so obsessed with their own control, and when I say those, I'm talking to myself, everything feels like a threat. Everything good feels like a threat to you. Every offer of salvation or every offer of, 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 of a good work feels like a threat to me because it's a threat to my own power my own control. Every article I read is a threat that I don't share the same opinion. It's a threat to my own control or my own power of my life. What if they're right and I'm not? Every social media post is a threat. Every conversation I have of someone of, who doesn't agree with me is a threat. Every criticism is a threat. It shows how fragile we can be. These spiritual elites, who everyone looked up to, who had all the money in the world, all the influence in the world, in one passage showed how fragile they really were. You know, this past weekend for Rose's birthday, I spent four hours making a cake. <laughs> Some of you were over at my house Friday night, helped me make the cake. And as soon as you showed up this morning, you're like, Aaron, how was the cake? Well, spent four hours making this real, authentic buttercream, banana, batter, cake. And it was beautiful. And it looked like a beehive. We were even going to make bees and flowers and put on it. However... I put it on a very fragile glass plate. And after 4 hours of making this thing, including it overnight so it could chill in the fridge, I went to put it back in the fridge just before its final icing, and I bumped the fridge door and I don't know if it was a temperature change or not, but the glass plate shattered. So unless I want to give a 15 7-year-old girl's cake with potential shards of glass mixed in, went straight in the garbage. And we got a cake from Sobeys instead. And it sucked. Okay? (laughs) It was terrible. Oh, man. Don't you love when you spend so much time and effort just to go in the trash? It was one of those moments I didn't really have time to be angry. But I was. You know, the littlest thing where one little social media post can throw us off and threaten us so much huh. shows how fragile we can we can really be like one little bump i got to move on peter flips the script though on these guys who is the judge who is the judge and who is being judged he says to them you know this is done in the name of jesus but this jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone of their salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You guys were the builders. You guys, what he means by that is what I believe is this. You were the builders of this nation. Like this is, you're the people of God. You were the builders of this nation. You think, you know, you, you, you're teaching the people and leading the people. However, what, hap- what can happen so often, as one commentator once said, it's the predicament of the elites who made it to the top, and now they think they can look down even on God. But he says Jesus is the cornerstone. You forgot your foundation. You can build all you want, but if you kill your own foundation, a house can't stand. You tried to build and refused the foundation, the true foundation. What I also think he's saying is this because of the risen one, this man who rose up, because of the risen one who rose from the dead, now through that same power, this man rises up and walks. You think you've got power? You don't have that kind of power. You can't do that. There's only so much that you can do. That's why he says there is no other name ultimately that can save these people. Not your leadership, not your decisions only by the name of Jesus. See, there's a lot of names we think that will save us. Maybe our family name, our job title. There's no other name that can save. And when those things come crashing down like a little bump on the fridge and shows how fragile we are, hopefully Acts 4 verse 12 becomes real to us. Man, there is no other name that ultimately can save Verse 14, I'm going to end here. Verse 14 says, They saw the man who was healed standing beside them. They had nothing to say in opposition. They had nothing left to say. Here's the crux. Because those who were judging, now Peter flips the script. Now they're the ones being judged. Here's the opportunity. For those people who hold on to their own power to, to let it go with open hands, say, you know what? I've been wrong. This isn't about me. I'm gonna let go of control of my own life. I'm gonna give up power to my God, whose name is Jesus. Here's the crux. And they could have crossed the line. Here's the opportunity. To place Jesus as the cornerstone of their life. And I love what Peter does. Because Peter, Peter even though there's some exclusive claims of Christianity. He's, he's sending the message to anybody who will respond to it. And lets them on their own accord make the decision. But crossing the line to place Jesus as cornerstone means that you're giving up your own power. Your own control. Even your own name see there was a time for Peter to cross the line you know when they say in verse 13 it says when they saw that they had been they recognized that they had been with Jesus there was another time that this Peter was recognized that he had been with Jesus and how did he respond to that one he was so concerned about his name that he was filled with fear And their threats in this passage. You can no longer speak in this name. It was effective to Peter in the past, but something had changed him. So much so that he says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than than to God, you must judge. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. See, here's the problem, why they couldn't obey this command. We're already under another command that's greater than you. I'm about the name of Jesus. And you might be my authority socially, but my God is my ultimate authority. I've already been given my command by him, which was what? I'm his witness. I can't help but speak about what he has done. So what do you want me to do? You want me to listen to you or listen to God? Because it's about the name of Jesus. Jesus remember the flashback. Those same people who gathered around Peter and John in this this couple years earlier, those same people, Annas and Caiaphas, another man stood naked before them with cast down eyes in judgment for a man that did nothing wrong. Think of what Peter and John are thinking. The exact same scenario. It's a morning where they're being tried These men's power was threatened enough that what did they do to their Lord? They crucified. They're capable of being crucified in this passage. You don't think that's going through Peter and John's heads? They're capable of losing their life on this very morning because that's what already happened to their Lord. If these guys are threatened enough, they're willing to do whatever it takes to hang on to their own power they've got nothing to lose though because Peter and John have already given up their lives because there's one thing that consumes them now and it's the name of Jesus. Because there's only one thing that can save them and their hearers and it's the name of Jesus and even if it means I'm losing my life today, I believe in something called resurrection and it's this name alone that can save. Whatever happens to my name, So be it. God, thank you so much for your word. Man, it's humbling knowing that I probably wouldn't respond the way Peter and John did. I wish I could. You know, I think I read these passages, God, and I'm like, yeah, I could do this. I freak out, though, when I'm with a, my best friend and have to say the name of Jesus. Oh, man. There's only one thing that says, like, like Audrey's in that hospital bed and all my other anxieties are, are gone. Lord, there's one concern that should rise to the surface of each and every one of us in this church. This world that is in pain needs to hear a message of hope found in the specific event of of resurrection. And a God named Jesus. Lord, if there's people in this room that have not responded to that, may today be the day. May they give their life to you. Yes, that means giving over control. Yes, that means giving up our own power. But may may they give it to the one who loves them, who has shown grace to them. Yeah, we pray for all these things in your great name.